0: All right, it's Bowling Cut. It's Brandon here. Uh, it's a beautiful morning here in the Smoky Mountains with some lat roast, watching the sun come up. I've got a uh, got a few books here that we're going to be basing a lot of this study on. You know, when we look at um, uh, you know, churches today, Protestant churches. I think as far as them uh in catholic churches protestants um many times aren't as uh you know they don't have as much knowledge on church history and church uh fathers and their writings and uh i think for the most part we like to identify them with the catholics but we didn't start in the 1600s you know and and i'm baptist so that that would be a little bit after that when the official baptist church uh you know, kind of started in 1689, had the, the, uh, confession and whatnot, you know, which we began before that. But, um, you know, we, we started, our church history starts with Paul and Peter as well, you know, and, and, uh, after Pentecost, you know, we, we, we can, uh, retrieve that. And Gavin Ortland, uh, Truth Unites, his, his, uh, show youtube series and uh, he's, he's got a podcast as well um and he's got a book theological retrieval for evangelicals he's really opened my eyes to to that fact and really um you know i've always been obsessed with eschatology and i really like theology as well but i like church history and i've really grown obsessed with it here lately I like history in general, and so uh, like any other history of humans, it's it's quite messy. <laughs> it's uh, you know, and and we don't base our faith on the fathers; we base it on Scripture. All right, so, but I do think the fathers can open our eyes and uh, show us how different periods through history, how how those Christians and those churches viewed things and uh, saw things and we can learn from them you know (laughs) and if nothing else you know see where we came from i think it's beautiful um can learn you know what not to do (laughs) as well um but yeah we we can uh and and what i plan to do with this series is just kind of walk through uh the history obviously and mostly some of the important figures throughout history uh, throughout church history and some of the important events and um, it's going to be some good. It's going to be some bad. And yeah, I think it'll be fun, especially the Middle Ages, uh, we, which we won't get to today. I've uh, really the first three, uh, first five centuries have so much. I mean, you could do weeks and weeks on that. Um, but there, there's really more in that in that time, and more huge figures um, that we'll be going through. I'm going to try to get through. Let me name them. I think I'm going to try to get through Justin Martyr, which will bring up Polycarp. We're going to try to get to, um... Let's see, uh, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and, uh... Origen. I don't think we'll get to Athanasius. But, uh... Yeah, we'll at least try to get to Origen. And, um... Uh, get to know some of their writings, um... Which are, is always interesting. Um... But anyway, yeah, let's jump in. Um, You know, when you think of, I'll kind of give you a layout here. So like first century, some of the big events you got, um, obviously at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit descends on the disciples in Jerusalem. Some 3,000 people become Christians. They spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And you got Stephen, Stephen Stoned, the first Christian martyr, stoned to death in Jerusalem, and then you got believers scatter through Judea and Samaria, and then one of the big ones is the conversion of Paul, and, um, uh, you know, one of the, you know, there's plenty of evidences as, as far as as God, and, uh, you know, you can talk about the moral argument, you can talk about the, uh, the cosmic arguments, uh, you know, our conscience and, and how everything just, uh, exploded and began. We know, like, most scientists agree today that this earth began. And just, you know, looking at the creation and how complex it is, uh, you know, to prove God. But and, and as far as Christ, there's so many prophecies of the Old Testament pointing towards Christ. He fulfilled so much. But also, one of the biggest evidences to me, for me, um, for the resurrection is his... uh. Disciples, You know, when he was arrested, they were scared. You know, we could call them cowards. Uh, Peter denied him. But uh, something happened. And I don't think that they would hide the body and then all willingly die and lie for it. For what they knew wasn't true. Because they did. They all willingly died. And uh, and we'll even see in uh, Justin Martyr's writings a little later. You know, he's, he's talked about how great Socrates was. But nobody died for Socrates. You know, these men died for their faith. These men died for Jesus, and they died because they, you know, they saw that resurrection. And they believed something changed. Type of boldness. And uh, but anyway, yeah, we see the conversion of Paul, and then he goes on. Uh, eventually, goes on three missionary journeys, starting in A.D. 48 to preach to Jews and Gentiles. He writes thirteen letters, letters uh, you know, epistles. To the new churches, um, jumping around, we got you know. You start seeing, obviously, they were pers- Christians were persecuted by the Jews, but also sixty four A. D. We see a great fire in Rome, and um, Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for it, and so he starts torturing and kill, and he kills thousands of Christians. Um, well, after that, you see Peter and Paul are taking the Rome. Paul evangelizes, and uh, they're both executed under Nero. Speaking of that, we got, you know, as far as, you know, we we had Stephen at first, Paul and Peter, both were martyred in Rome in the late six, uh, 60s A.D. Uh, during that persecution under Emperor Nero, Paul was, tradition says Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. You got Thomas is said to have been speared to death in India, James, um, we see for James, the Jewish historian Josephus reports that he was stoned and then clubbed to death, so You know, much death and persecution during this time in the spreading of the gospel. Then, obviously, 66 to 70 AD, we see the Jewish revolt against the Romans, and Emperor Titus destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Many Christians flee during that time. Um, You know, many of the preterists point to that, as far as the fulfillment of Matthew 24 or something, where, where, you know, it talks about fleeing to the mountains when you see them surrounded. But... We had a lesson about that a few episodes ago. So obviously that's an important issue. Antioch becomes a big center for Christianity. You got 85 through 150. We see writings of the apostolic fathers, early church leaders during this time. We got Barnabas and Clement of Rome as a huge figure. Uh, Ignatius, Ignatius, huge figure. And then obviously Polycarp um, is a big figure as well. And after that, you see a little bit of rise of the Gnostic heresies within the church. Some Gnostics deny Jesus' humanity. They call these uh, Docetism, if I'm saying that right. Um, they deny his humanity, Christ's humanity, saying that he merely appeared to have a body. Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge beyond divine revelation and faith. So we'll talk a little bit about Gnosticism as we go along. And you know, and as far as Jesus is, they're they're talking here about him not having a, a body. You know, they would they think the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, so they, Christ couldn't physically have had an actual body. It just seemed that way is what they would think. 107, we see the martyrdom of Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who wrote letters of encouragement to the early churches. <clears throat> 155, Justin Martyr, he was a theologian. He writes his first apology, a rebuttal to Greek philosophers. So he, he's got that those... And then he also has a big one, uh, something with Trifo. Um, I think dialogue maybe with Trifo, who is a Jew. So, you know, he's a big, one of the first big apologists. And we'll, we'll be digging into a little bit of him and his writings. Polycarp, uh, after that, a little after 150 AD, we see he's the bishop of Smyrna and, and disciple of the apostle John. And he is burned at the stake at the age of 86. Polycarp refers to Old and New Testament books as scriptures. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about him. After that, we see a man named Montanus preaches a form of religious extremism called Montanism. Um, We'll talk about him. One eighty, we see Irenaeus of Lyons, student of Polycarp and great theologian, writes against heresies. He lists twenty New Testament books as canonical officially accepted and recognized as authoritative so his against heresies we'll talk a little bit about that 196 the Easter controversy concerned the day to celebrate Christ's resurrection the Western Christians preferred Sunday Eastern Christians preferred li- uh, linking Easter with the Jewish Passover regardless of the day of week so whatever day Passover falls on and you know that that actually sounds uh, more reasonable to me. <laughs> Obviously, we're we're in the West, so we're more influenced by the Western teachings, and we'll see through that series, you know, with the break-off. We're, we're more influenced with Augustine of Hippo and uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church rather than the Eastern traditions, but we'll get a little bit into that. So once we get into the 3rd century, um, you got uh, Clement of Alexandria, who we'll talk about, um, Origen, who we'll talk about, Uh, Another big thing, Manichaeism originates in Persia in about 240 AD. This dualistic heresy denies the humanity of Christ and reappears in different forms over the centuries. I'm pretty sure that's the one that Augustine uh, fell into at first. And then he found Neoplatonism and then eventually Christianity with uh, the help of Ambrose and his allegorical approach. During this century, we see monasticism begins in Egypt. And a big figure there is, uh, uh, oh, Anthony. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't get that out. I was like, "What was it?" I've been reading his, uh, and we'll read a little bit of it if I get time at the end. Um, Anthony, his, uh, Athanasius wrote a, a book about him. and That's kind of what spread his popularity. A desert father, which ended up turning into monasticism. Very interesting. I got a book on the way. Um, early, uh, it's, I've read a little bit of it but I've got the physical copy coming and it's the Desert Fathers some of their sayings and it's just very interesting stories the pillar saints I'm very much so intrigued with um, but anyway here we see the phrase Catholic and it's used to mean all churches that agree with the whole apostolic teaching as opposed to the heretical groups that follow a secret revelation or knowledge based on one teaching we get to the 4th century early 4th century which we'll stop at very early fourth, uh, three hundred three to three hundred four, we see violent persecution of Christians um, under Diocletian. Scriptures burned, thousands of Christians killed. Three eleven, uh, the really the whole fourth century, you see a, a thing called don, Donatism, Donatist schism in North Africa, and, and I think Augustine writes a little bit on this, but this is a big, big issue during that time. Uh, Christians who stayed faithful during Diocletian's persecution persecution oppose the leniency toward those who lapsed. So basically, can they still be a bishop if they turned away um, during that time? uh, You know, gave in to the, they didn't want to die, so they denied Christ, but then they came back. Do we just accept them back? And also the idea um, that Augustine kind of talks towards, um, we'll see, is uh, the idea of, can they give out sacraments if they are not legit or if, you know, they did this, this uh, or they denied Christ and then came back or whatever. And, and, you know, he's like, you don't have to worry about, you know, who's giving you the sacrament the sacraments legit because it's the sacrament, you know, whether that person is, uh, you know, legit or not. But we'll get into that. Um, 312, Constantine, Emperor of the Western provinces, sees a vision of the cross of Jesus that he credits for giving him victory in battle. So after Constantine, you see um, he legalizes Christianity. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. And then after that, it's it's made the official religion with uh, um, Theodosius, I believe. Yeah. And then 391, late, late third century. So at the first of the third century, early third century, Christians are getting persecuted heavily. The end of the fourth century, or, or the start of the fourth century, Christians are getting persecuted. The end of the fourth century, uh, they're persecuting pagans for not being Christian. <laughs> so, well, that was a wild century for sure. And we'll just get into a little bit of that one today, but just that's like a little highlight area. I think that's good. We'll try to run through some of these. I don't want this to run too long. Um, okay, the Universal Church, 70 A.D. to 312 A.D. is really what I want to jump in today. We see a lot of persecution, as I said, a lot of heresies. Gnosticism, Marcionism, and Montanism are the three main ones we'll be discussing. And there's things within that, like the Valentinians within Gnosticism. Uh, was there a pope? You know, Peter was he the pope, uh, infallible pope from the beginning? And there were successions all the way through where he was the one pope in Rome and everyone listened to him. Um, is that is that the case? In scripture, bishops and elders are interchangeably ter- interchangeable terms. So it's clear that Paul and Peter's churches were led by a group of elders, right? They would pick the older or the experienced, the trusted man whose office was referred to as bishop or overseer. We see from history that churches seemed to eventually... Um, have elders and then a lead person that which they called the bishop so the bishop that word in the the word bishop in the oxford dictionary makes known that they used bishop and elder interchangeably originally jerome even in the 5th century even says that bishop and presbyter are one and the same so is was there one pope in rome that was over all the churches at this time from the from the beginning Ignatius, 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 whatever, first century, we mentioned him and his martyrdom. His letter is, is a big area that they point to as far as um, apostolic succession and, um, you know, just talking towards, a, I guess, a, one of their things that Catholics will use um, for evidences of that. But in his letters, it doesn't mention a single bishop or mention the bishop by name, and he doesn't even mention a bishop in Rome. Biblically, I think the uh, papal infallibility, it's it's a weak argument to me. The Peter argument's weak. Um, To me, I don't think Peter was infallible, right? I mean, Paul even opposes him on an issue. Um, Peter holds the keys of heaven, it talks about. You know, Matthew 16, you are this rock, uh, the binding and loosening. And, uh, And there's different church father quotes, even Augustine, uh, you know, this is like the confession that Peter makes, and that that's, symbolizes the church as Peter and the rock. And even you've got some church fathers who think Christ the, is the rock. So this isn't like a everyone is, is a, on agreeance, has agreeance on what that is, and, and Peter being the the main guy here. You know, even John Christostom in the 4th century writes that John the Apostle held the keys of heaven. So really, I think Peter was just the first among equals of the Apostles. I don't think historically you have a bishop in Rome who is exercising universal jurisdiction until much later, you know, from reading the early church father writings and history historically. Anytime the Roman bishop and we see this through writings that anytime the Roman bishop had a conflict, you know, throughout the you know, first few centuries, fourth, fifth, sixth, anytime the Roman bishop had conflict with other neighboring bishops, you know, like such as those in, in northern Africa or whatever, even on the Greek side the eastern orthodox side which that you know is one church at this time but the eastern church really kind of in constantinople you know and obviously rome was important and uh, everyone looked to rome but any time that they had conflict or an, an, insu- an issue uh, the roman bishop would always lose in the sense that these other bishops just seemed to ignore what he said or just reject what he said so we have no examples even in scripture that I can see, or the Didache, which is a huge important book, um, or even Clement of Rome, of a single of a single leader. But we do see plurality of leaders within a church there at the first. Even a Catholic scholar, Catholic scholars agree on this. The Catholic scholar, Eamon Duffy, in his book, Saints and Sinners, he writes on Clement in the first century. He says, At Rome, the church at this time was organized under a group of bishops, or presbyters, rather than a single ruling bishop. A lot of Catholics they'll respond with Irenaeus in the second century. He mentions apostolic succession in his writings. Um, right, and you got that in Anglicans, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Greek Orthodox, you know, uh, and they'll point to that, and especially the Roman Catholics. Uh, but when you look at Irenaeus, you got to look at the context. You got to look at his where he was and the time that he's writing this. He's dealing, you know, he wants a succession of office because he wants a succession of doctrine. He appealed to succession because of the threat of heresy at that time. You know, his whole issues of his against heresies was writing against the Gnostics. So he wanted to keep the sound doctrine of the apostles. You know, when you talk about keeping tradition, whose tradition? You know, when they say that, they'll say Roman Catholic tradition, or is he talking about apostolic tradition, the tradition of the early fathers? Um, I think even you know, I don't think Irenaeus is you know, that's the thing with the Church Fathers. You can't base everything on something they write. Um many times, you know, they'll say Protestants pick and choose um from the church fathers, but so do Catholics. You have to pick and choose because they don't wanna you know, they're and that's the thing. They the early church, they here's the big thing that we gotta remember. Let the early church be the early church. They don't look like Baptists. They don't look like Roman Catholics. They don't look like Methodists. They don't look, you know, they, they're all, they are let them be them. But you can't take everything um, as truth with them either. Because they are, I don't feel like their writings are infallible. Um, and no one else would either. But, but, you know, when even looking at that, as far as the office and who it was handed down to early on. Irenaeus says Linus and Tertullian, about that same time period, a little bit after Irenaeus, he says Clement. So they both say two different people. So who's right? Um, also, Irenaeus believed, you know, some odd things. Uh, we just mentioned his uh, eschatology and how his intermediate state, which all these early first-century fathers believed in, that intermediate state before um, the second, before the first resurrection, which we would go to in Sheol. And you know, many—I don't know anyone who says that they're right on that issue. Even Irenaeus felt like Jesus uh, died at an older age, so that you know, that's a little different, but. Also, here Irenaeus doesn't mention an infallible office. He wants to keep the apostolic doctrine safe through all the heresies that are going around. Um, He wants a true successor of the position, one who keeps the same doctrines. You see this in Gregory of Nazianzus in in the 4th century. He points to this. He says, The truth of succession, as far as this office, nor is he a successor who teaches a contrary doctrine, but he who is of the same faith, unless anyone says that he is a successor, as disease is a successor of health. So I like the way he puts that, and he keeps going on. You can point to many other people, but thought that was a fun one. I mean, when you look at the successors in the Middle Ages, uh, m- much different doctrines uh, than the, these early ones. So I would say that that's not a true successor if they're taking different doctrines, but um, so I think you have weak evidence, historically and scripturally, to a Roman infallible pope early on. Even Cyprian in the 3rd century, he's a great example. <clears throat> he firmly opposes the idea that he had to do what Stephen said, just by virtue of Stephen being the bishop of Rome. So he writes, and Cyprian, he writes this, he says, For neither does any one of us set himself up as bishop of bishops, as a bishop of bishops, nor by a tyr- uh, tyrannical... Um, terror does any compel his colleague to the necessity of obedience since every bishop according to the allowance of his liberty and power has his own proper right of judgment so here he's saying those references to a bishop of bishops is a reference to stephen's apparent claim of authority over other bishops including cyprian and the other african bishops cyprian and the others rejected that position so that's showing that they didn't look to the Roman bishop as the ultimate authority. They're like, no, we don't have to do what you do just because you're the Roman dude. You know, and uh, so, yeah, um, you know, I've, going back and forth, uh, many Catholics will say that Protestantism leads to chaos. You know, we've got all these denominations. I went up one, and you know, that that's a good stab for sure. I went up one street up here where uh, we're kind of doing a little vacation trip, uh, and I dropped Ashley off to pick up food and I was going to swing back around and pick her up so we didn't have to park cuz parking's like 20 bucks and we're just grabbing grabbing it to go and heading back to the cabin. So I swing up this little road and I go up road I, I kid you not. There was an Episcopal church, there was a Lutheran church, a St. Mary's Catholic church, a Methodist church and a Church of Christ. One road. I'm talking less than a mile of of distance between those. <laughs> I'm like, "Good, not can we <laughs> I just thought that was wild, but, you know, if, if uh, Protestant is chaos, is chaos, then I would say that this uh, Roman Catholicism is tyranny with this Roman Catholic Pope as the ultimate authority who can change dogmas and doctrines, and and uh, and you see that, especially in the Middle Ages and even afterwards with the, you know, the Marian dogmas and the Pope infallibility and, and uh, prayer to the saints. We'll look at some of these issues and, and all that, and... But anyway, so there's there's the first little issue I wanted to throw in there, and we'll look a little bit at when we get to Athanasius, it, as far as the canon of scripture and everything, and that's a fun one to get into. So let's start into the first character that we're going to talk about, Justin Martyr. Huge apologist. Early on, most of us know him as uh, a, uh, a martyr, right? <laughs> that's what we would know him for, that name, right? Um, there's this book, The 100 Most Important Events in Christian History, it's a fun one, uh, just a little few paragraphs about each of these important people, it's mostly people rather than events, but um, but yeah, um, and it's obviously Protestant, you can tell it's a little biased, but... Justin became one of the first Christian apologists, those who explained the faith as a reasonable system. He interpreted Christianity in terms familiar to the educated Greeks and Romans of this day. So this is going to be one of the big issues, talking about the influence of the Greek culture and and, and, uh, Greek theology. For Justin, all truth was God's truth. The great Greek philosophers had been inspired by God to some extent, but had remained blind to the fullness of the truth of Christ. So Justin borrowed freely from Greek thought, explaining Christ as its fulfillment. So and he even says um, that, that uh, Christianity is the philosophy of, of philosophies. It's the, um, it's the ultimate philosophy. Um, let's read a little bit of him. Uh, Justin Martyr. Nothing long. On Logos and the Philosophers. Justin writes... For myself, when I learned the wicked travesty... By which the evil demons had discussed... Or disguised the divine teachings of the Christians... In order to detour others from them... I laughed at the spreaders of false reports... At the travesty... And at the popular opinion. I confess that I prayed and strove... With all my might... and, And that I might prove a Christian not because Plato's teachings are contrary to Christ's, but because they are not, in all respects, identical with them, as in the case with the doctrines of others, the Stoics, uh, referring to Stoicism, and the poets and and the prose authors, for each, through his snare in the divine generative Logos, spoke well, seeing what was akin to it, while those who contradict them on the more important matters clearly have not obtained the hidden wisdom and the irrefutable knowledge. Thus, whatever had, has been spoken are Aright, by any man belongs to us Christians. So all truth is God's truth, because God is God. Right. Thus, whatever has been spoken aright by any men belongs to us Christians, for we worship and love next to God the Logos, the Word. Right. <clears throat> and uh, that word's that word's big. That's the kind of the Johannite. Uh, literature they'll call it uh, you know john's literature basically and that's kind of what he refers to in logos the word the word became you know flesh for we worship and love next to god the, the logos which is from the unbegotten and uh, inevitable god since it was on our behalf that he has been made man that becoming that becoming partaker of our sufferings he may also bring us healing, for all those writers were able through the seed of the logos implanted in them to see reality darkly. For it is one thing to have the seed of a thing and to imitate it up to one's capacity, far different is the thing itself, shared and imitated in virtue of its own grace. So I just think that's important for in this lesson. Just read something of them to kinda to to kinda get them. And that's so interesting to me that we get to that we have their writings. You know, this is this is a second century. Like, this is a long time ago. Um, so, yeah. The next guy, we don't, we're don't, we not going to read anything on him. I don't know how much we actually have of him. Um, I don't know if we have anything, actually. But uh, we do know about Polycarp. Polycarp was uh, really known for one of his... He was uh, being persecuted. And uh, what he's known for... Um, he was a bishop of Smyrna in the 2nd century. And tradition says... That he studied under John the Apostle. So, and this is what Irenaeus points to. So, a lot. Um, and he was um, refusing to worship the gods of the, the emperor and uh, of Rome, the gods of Rome. And so, the, the Roman uh, leader, he was pretty much looking at, he, he admired Polycarp for his age. And he's like, just deny Christ and just do this little thing. And we'll get it over with. Like, you know, why? Why do you want to? I mean, do you want to die? And uh, he, he says, "I have respect for your old age, old man." And uh, he wants him to, you know, they, they referred to Christians then as atheists because we didn't do all the, uh, the sacrifices and stuff and the pagan festivals. So we were the atheists then. So Polycarp looks at the crowd around him, and he uh, points to them, and, and uh, gestured towards them, and said, away with the atheist to them, so he points to them as the atheist, he said, take the oath, the, the Roman leader says, take the oath, and I shall release you, curse Christ, the bishop, Polycarp, stood firm, and he said, 86 years have I served him, referring to Christ, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong, how can I blaspheme my king who has saved me, and he dies, um. that's that's awesome the the boldness there and the courage and the faith and the love and uh yeah so he was a great martyr um Irenaeus the bishop of Lyons am I saying that right it sounds French right Lyons late second century he was known for opposing the Gnostics his against her- heresies and that was the first uh, early church father book I, I bought and it's a thick one. I really just bought There's five books within it. first two detail the Gnostic views. Book three and four points to the true Christian teachings, kind of. And then book five is on the resurrection and his end times views, which is why I bought it. I, I really wanted to read book five and read through his ideas, um, which we, we had a lesson on. Um, and actually, we'll read a little bit on his restored creation idea, just to get an idea of Irenaeus, another important the restored creation. <clears throat> We've talked a little bit about his millennial ideas. and All right, so he says, some men hold beliefs which are imported from heretical discourses. They are ignorant of the ways of God's working and of the mystery of the resurrection of the just and of their kingdom, which is the beginning of immortality. The kingdom by which such as have proved worthy are gradually accustomed to receive God. For this reason, it is necessary to say something on this subject and to explain that in the restored creation, the righteous must rise first at the appearing of God to receive their promised inheritance, right? And this is referring to the millennium promised by God to the fathers and to reign therein. After that follows the judgment for it is only right that they should receive the reward of their endurance in that. Created order in which they suffered hardship or affliction and were in all manner of ways tested by suffering, that they should be brought to life in that created order in which they were put to death for the love of God and to reign where they had um, endured bondage. For God is rich in all things, and all things are His, therefore, this created order must be restored to its first condition and be made subject to the righteous without hindrance. And this the Apostle shows in the Epistle to the Romans when he says, The earnest expectation of the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of God. So there he's just referring to, um, you know, obviously where we will be um, restored in our glorified sense. And so will creation. We all are mourning for being restored, right? The creation will be back to, um, you know, restored in all its beauty and glory and perfection. All right, so Gnosticism. And this is what he's mainly known for Irenaeus, his writings against, and really his details. The first two books are him detailing what the Gnostics actually believe. Most Gnostics consider themselves Christians. It was kind of a dualistic um, uh, idea that they had. It was, uh, and you know, uh, here my, um, one of the books here is uh, is uh, from uh a college that my wife's sisters going to and it's a history of christian theology it's church history that they're doing i think in the class and uh, it's kind of a liberal book but it's, it's just the comments really everything's pretty um everything seems to connect with all the other uh, places i've i've looked and they all seem to to uh be you know saying the same thing, so i, I think it's a, a good legit book and it's and it's really it's a good book it's laid out good um, and uh, well, one of the things she had to do in class was be the Gnostic and write towards Irenaeus like writing back to Irenaeus and, and one of the big issues there is that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament one and that's one of the big things that they the heresies that they would say the, the Gnostic, Gnostics <clears throat> a good God and an evil God the evil God created the earth the physical is bad, materials are corrupt We are to try to escape the physical body and rise to the spiritual, the demurge. That's what you'll see in Irenaeus' writing. This is what they considered as the bad god of the Old Testament, the creator of the physical, right? So really, he's our creator, the bad god. Even though we are a part of this physical world, we have a divine nature inside us. So he, when creating us, I, I guess a little bit of his divine came into us, even though he's a bad god. Even though we are part of this physical world, we have a divine inside us. They don't think Jesus, the good God, actually took form of a real physical body. So, just kind of like uh, uh, the Donatist, um, Donatists. Am I saying that right? I don't know. Um, which we mentioned earlier in the lesson. Um, so it only appeared that he had a physical body. They say the Valentinians is one of the bigger Gnostic groups that Irenaeus writes against. Uh, they were one of the main Gnostic groups. Uh, uh, The single supreme being, two Valentinians, was known as the Father, the True God, and uh, his realm consists of the lower beings, pure minds, which the True God emanated from his own essence. The combination of all these beings, usually referred to in Gnostic contexts as eons, but eventually to what we'd call, you know, it's uh, it's equivalent. Eons are equivalent to what we call as angels. Um, so they're along with God in in uh, along with God the eons and and this God is the the pleroma is what it consists of the fullness pleroma. So you got the true God and you got all these eons. Sophia is an eon. Sophia eon, philosophy, uh, wisdom, love of wisdom, <coughs> philosophy. Sophia is an eon and which means wisdom. She leaves she, I don't know if it's there's genders there, but <laughs> leaves the divine realm and another eon uh, called error, <clears throat> and both of them obtain ignorance, and the physical realm is created out of ignorance. So we are created out of ignorance. They create the Demerge, who is the creator, bad God, in the Old Testament, who created humankind. So the creator of the Old Testament is the Demerge, who is a lesser God than the Father. The Demerge originates out of the fracture in the Pleroma, but being far below the eons and himself ignorant, <clears throat> he thinks himself to be the one true God. So that Emerge is below the eons, even. Jesus Christ is also a lesser God who comes to save the other eons. He is an agent for salvation, a salvation, a salvation that's not of sins or not from sins, being saved from sins, but rather a salvation for knowledge of God. Salvation is us taking off the ignorance in which you know, we're created by ignorance. Taking off the ignorance and putting on knowledge. Christ came into the world to spread knowledge of the Father. So the way to salvation is knowledge. Which, Gnosticism, Gnostic, means knowledge. Seek and you will find. Jesus helps with finding the knowledge. In this book, it writes Gnostics agreed that our bodies are not part of our true selves, but some, therefore, rigorously denied the body and all its desires in order to purify the soul. Since the body is not part of the essential self, bodily pleasures do not really touch us. Gnostics claim to be Christians. They proclaim Jesus as the Savior who brings the secret wisdom that teaches us how to escape this evil world. Gnostics taught that our bodies and all the material world are evil or illusory. Illusions, right? Um, they wouldn't say that um, that do you do you not uh, do not think that the resurrection is an illusion? So you know the resurrection is not illusion, not an illusion, but rather it's more fitting to say that the world is an illusion. Okay, most Gnostics, convinced of the evil of the world of matter, denied that Christ could have had a physical body. Some denied that he had even been born of a woman. We see the New Testament already. Uh, talks about, you know, warnings against Gnosticism. <clears throat> Writing to the Colossians, Paul referred to a Gnostic group uh, that had been worshipped, uh, that may have worshipped invisibly. Invisible thrones or dominions or rules or powers and advised, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. That's in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 2 taking a little bit from each one <clears throat> so Gnosticism I gave you a good little history of it um, Marcionism is another big one we talked a little bit about him he was a um, Marcion was the son of a Christian bishop in Asia Minor so he was around true doctrine but he says uh, <clears throat> Marcion says if God is good would he really have created a world as full of evil and suffering as this one when we read about the angry harsh bloodthirsty god of the jewish scriptures does that sound like jesus's loving father marcion offered a simple solution to such puzzles there are two gods one either evil or merely without mercy and a bit incompetent who created the world and is the and is the god described in the old testament the other a good god and the father of christ so that dualistic idea that we see. Gnosticism, basically. Marcion held that the good God had had no relationship at all with us or anything else in the world until he sent Christ his son. Tertullian, which we'll get to a little later, um, he writes, you know, kind of, or talks back to Marcion. Um, I think he's actually got a book against Marcion. But he, he says back, you know, sarcastically, Tertullian observes that Marcion's God ought not to have even created at least a solitary vegetable in all that time. So he's like, so he didn't do anything during that whole time? (laughs) Uh, Until Christ's coming? He's like, that's weird. Uh, For Marcion, though, God's prior non-involvement meant that in Christ, God is not restoring us to our rightful place, but offering undeserved salvation out of pure love. And we should try not to learn some secret wisdom, but accept that love and gratitude and simple faith. So he actually had a good doctrine on grace and and mercy. (laughs) Um, Maybe even a little bit of justification, but definitely had a wrong idea of of, of God and the Trinity and everything else, really. But, you know, a lot of uh, scholars and theologians and historians point out that you don't really see much of the church fathers early on on grace until you get to Augustine. And Augustine really Uh, you know, really points out grace and what it is and how it applies to us as Christians. Um, So, yeah. Um, After this, obviously, we we need to figure out and and really lean on the scriptures because of all these heresies that are going around. And we'll get to that. The last one is Montanism, the first Pentecostals. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But it is... Kind of similar to some of that they had, um, Montanism. We talked a little bit about him in the line, in the, in the uh, outline. Montanus is is based on Montanism. He was the starter of this. Montanus lived in. Well, it is thought of that he is. I've heard differently that it could have been others, but Montanism. Montanus is the one who we, who we believe started this. He lived in Asia Minor in the middle of the second century. He claimed that when he fell into a trance, the Holy Spirit spoke directly through him. The church historian. Uh, named Eusebius, right? He writes a he has a book called Church History. Eusebius, he he writes on on Montanism and Montanus. He said a recent convert named Montanus was filled with spiritual excitement and suddenly fell into a kind of trance and unnatural ecstasy. He raved and began to chatter and talk nonsense. Then he secretly stirred up and inflamed minds close to the true faith, raising up in this way two others, women whom he filled with the sham spirit so that they chattered crazily, inappropriately, and wildly, like Montanus himself. The Montanists claim, and this is, that's end quote, the Montanists claim that their revelations direct, uh, direct from the Holy Spirit could supersede the authority of Jesus or Paul or anyone else. So the revelations that they got from the Holy Spirit could supersede that. A young Christian named Marcion uh, came after that, but... Alright, so that's that's kind of montanism, and there's a whole thing with <coughs> one of my favorite characters in scripture, Tertullian, on whether he actually joined them at the end of his life, but we'll get to Tertullian right now, his uh, late second century, early third, he was a lawyer, we believe, uh, we can see his legalistic, uh, legalistic approach in his writings, uh, it's very obvious he was very sure of his outcomes. As well as aggressive in his dialogues. He was a great scholar and theologian. And really we get the the term trinity from him. That we all use today. Trinity. He was a Latin writer. When most of the world at that time wrote and read in Greek. So trinity I believe comes from the Latin. Um, I'm going to read a little bit on him. And this you know as far as the trinity. I figured we'd write something where he's pointing towards the trinity. And you know he was the big guy that was against mixing greek thought and jewish thought but even within that i love how beautiful this is his writing on this um it's called sun and ray spring and river projection it kind of almost sounds like the essence energy distinction in the greek orthodox where they'll kind of say like god's as far as his uh um, his essence and his energy and, and they explain it by the sun and how the sun's like the essence and the energy off that is like the rays which we can experience or something maybe with and you know we look at Moses whenever he kinda the closest to seeing God as human and he glowed for a few days I believe after that experience we can't see God or we would die right because of his glory and and everything, but anyway, here he writes, and and, you know, we know that uh, that as Christians, we believe and Trinitarians, that Christ is consubstantial, same substance, co-eternal, always has been. All three persons of the Trinity, right? And it's it's such a complicated idea that I don't think we can fully wrap our head around and fully understand and even Maybe even when we get to heaven, and, uh, or the, the kingdom to come, eternity, whether we'll still fully understand it, but we believe co-eternal, consubstantial. <clears throat> but it almost sounds different when listening to uh, Tertullian explain it. He says, um, so Valentinus taught the projection of eon from eon. And the Logos doctrine may seem something of this kind. But with Valentinus, the projections are far removed from their author. With us, the Son alone knows the Father, uh, has declared the Father's bosom, has heard and seen all things in the Father's presence. For who knows the things that are in God except the Spirit which is in him? Now the Word is formed by Spirit, and Spirit is, so to speak, the body of the Word. Therefore the Word is always in the Father, I in the Father and with the Father, and never separated or apart from the Father. This will be the projection of truth. <clears throat> For God produces the word, as the Parclete also teaches, as a root produces the shoot, as a spring, the river, as the sun, a ray. For these manifestations are projections of these substances from which they proceed. I would not hesitate to call a shoot the son of a root, or call a river the son of a spring, or call a ray, A son of the son. For every original source is a parent. And what is, is like a parent, like like a parent and a son. For every original source is a parent, and what is produced is its offspring. Much more is this true of the word of God, who has received the name of son as his proper designation. But the shoot is not detached from the root, nor is the word detached from God. Thus, in accordance with those analogies, I confess that I speak of two, God and his word, the father and his son. For root and shoot are two, but conjoined, right? Everything that proceeds from anything must needs be another thing, but it is not therefore separate. When there is one other, there are two. When there is a third, there are three. And here's where he brings in the spirit. The spirit makes the third from God and the son. As the fruit, as the fruit, from the shoot is the third from the tree the canal from the river the third from the source the point of focus of a ray third from the sun but none of those is divorced from the origin from which it derives its own quality (coughs) its own qualities thus the trinity derives from the father by continuous and connected steps I think it's kind of a beautiful process but it almost does sound like it's saying <clears throat> that the word, I suppose, was created or some sense, but we do believe in co-eternal, consubstantial, as Trinitarians today. Um, and you know that, and I can't uh, point out exactly what he is saying there. Um, but it is beautiful saying, you know, pointing it to the analogies that he uses. Um, how they're all connected, but they are separate. And we believe three persons. One God. Three persons, one God, as Trinitarian Orthodox. Um, And you know what's interesting, we'll get to some of the splits of the Eastern and the Westerns eventually, but as far as the Spirit coming from the Father and the Son, I think is the West's view, and the split with the East was, no, the Spirit just comes from the Father. So, um, yeah. Um, I love listening to the early Father's writings on Trinitarian issues. Um, that's really where I've grown the most, I think, and, and learning from them is their Trinitarian issues and the na- two natures of the one person of Christ, which we'll get to around, uh, Chalcedon and, uh, oh, what's his name? I think it's, uh, the big guy kind of on that issue. I think he died before Chalcedon, but he even helped with Ephesus, um, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. So... Um, I'd like to get his one of his books actually kind of on that. Um, we're at fifty minutes, so let's see. Yeah, we'll stop here. Um, I really am excited about the next issue. We'll jump right back into Tertullian. It'll be Tertullian versus Alexandria, uh, Clement of Alexandria. So different than Clement of Rome. <clears throat> How is Christianity to be presented in the Greek world and the Hellenistic culture with their philosophy and their paganism? Philosophy, here's Clement of Alexandria. He says, philosophy was given to the Greeks as a schoolmaster to bring the the Hellenistic um, mind to Christ, the Hellenic mind to Christ. Then you got Tertullian on the opposite end of that saying, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. You know, and earlier, we see Justin Martyr, which we spoke about, he he quotes, whenever there is truth, and wherever there is truth, it is of Christ, and so it belongs to us Christians. Right, even, so you can compare that with science today. And if we find something in science, well, that's our truth as well as Christians, because God is the creator. Right, if we find a truth you know, but anything that contradicts Scripture can't be truth because Scripture is the ultimate truth and the ultimate authority. But anything outside of that, we find that's truth; it's ours as well because God's the creator. You know, we look at science today and all these different issues; that's God's truth; that's our truth because it's God's. But you got to, uh, you know, how much of our culture can we allow to influence our, you know, how we read Scripture? So too much of mixing the two forms of thought led to different Gnostic groups, we see, obviously. But the question is, is there value in finding some truths within philosophy? Alexandria is the big school. He was the, it was the big intellectual center for the Greco-Roman world at this time, the capital of the intellectual Hellenistic world. Philo is a huge... He was first century, big name during this time. First century uh, name for the Hellenistic world of Jewish and Greek culture, right? Alexandria was the home of this Jewish philosopher. Obviously, everything's Alexandria when it comes to this allegorical stuff. He mentioned, uh, he mingled Judaism with Greek thought. He took a very allegorical approach to scripture. in his treatise on allegorical interpretation follow quotes in Genesis 2.1. He says, and on the sixth day, God finished his work, which he had made. Then, he asserts, it would be a sign of great simplicity to think that the world was created in six days, or indeed, all in time. Concerning Genesis 2.8, Philo ridicules a literal reading of the, uh, in Genesis 2.8 where God planted a paradise in Eden. He says, let not such empathy over uh, ever occupy our thoughts as to suppose that God cultivates lands and plants paradises. That he cultivates lands and that he plants paradises. Since if we were to do so, we should be presently raising the question of why he does so for it could not be that he might provide himself with pleasant places of recreation and pastime or with amusement. So he he even looks at that as far as the garden as allegorical. We can't take that literally. Philo's work did influence Clement of Alexandria and his student origin of Alexandria. They were both over the school of Alexandria. Um, during the... Uh, See, Alec Clement was 150 to 215. Origin was 184 to 253. In the Bible Odyssey article, it writes, <clears throat> quote, an allegorical reading is based on the distinction made by the Greek philosopher Plato, which would be 4th century BC, between the sensible world, which human beings and that perceive through their bodily senses, and the intellectual world. So you got sensible world, In the intellectual world, the intellectual world is the more important realm of ideas which they grasp intellectually. In allegorical reading, the physical sense corresponds to the immediate, literal, or historical meaning of the text, while the intellectual corresponds to its deeper symbolic or spiritual contents. So about 160 AD, a man named uh, Pantanius, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he's really the guy who starts this school. He set up a school for sophisticated converts to Christianity. The well-educated would have different questions, right? They would need different answers than the illiterate, less educated people being witnessed to, right? His student and successor was Clement of Alexandria. Clement felt that Greek philosophy, as well as Jewish prophecy, was a preparation for the coming of Christ. So that's an interesting idea. You can see Clement's Gnostic influence. Every man has the image of God in him, which is to be transformed into the likeness. This image is man's reason, whose source is the Logos, which means word, and is used in the New Testament for Christ. Logos is throughout what is called the Jehoanin literature, which is John's literature, right? The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd book of John and Revelation. Clement felt that the Logos has spoken through not only the Jewish prophets, but also through the philosophers on the Greek side. We should unite, um, we should united ask the truth, which is the gift of the one divine logos. Um, Clement. Let's read one thing on him. We're almost done here. I'm going to stop at an hour, okay? Wherever we're at. It's going to stop. Um, just read something by him. Um, Alright, so his hymn on philosophy and religion. Philosophy was necessary to the Greeks for righteousness until the coming of the Lord, and even now it is useful for the development of true religion as a kind of preparatory discipline for those who arrive at faith by way of demonstration. For your foot will not stumble, as the scripture says, if you attribute to providence all good things, whether belonging to the Greeks or to us. For God is the source of all good." either directly as in the Old and New Testament or indirectly as in the case of philosophy. But it may even be that the philosophy was given to the Greeks directly, for it was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenistic mind or the Hellenism Hellenism to Christ as the law was for the Hebrews, right? Okay, so philosophy was given to the Greeks directly for it was a schoolmaster to bring Hellenism to Christ as the law was for the Hebrews. Thus philosophy was a preparation paving the way for the man who is brought to perfection by Christ. So, so you know, however you want to look at that. Looking back to Just a Martyr, Martyr, right, back to him, he says, while praising philosophy, he suggested that Christianity was the best of philosophies. He states, Just a Martyr does, there was no one who believed in Socrates so much as to die for his teaching, but educated as well as uneducated common men died for their faith in Christ. Justin said that we obviously can't take everything in the Bible literally. And I agree with that, right? Um, but the school of Alexandria expounded on the allegorical approach to scripture. Um, Clement's uh, successor was Origen. And he had huge influence. Um, right, Origen and Tertullian, though, they are not considered saints in the Catholic Church. <coughs> uh, you know, um, Origen had some wild ideas, um universalism for one. But Origen as a teenager <coughs> um, Origen had seen his father dragged off to martyrdom and had to be restrained from following him. Right As a young man, according to one story, he found that he provoked scandal by giving private lessons on the Bible to women. So this is interesting. Concerned that nothing should interfere with his work, he read in Matthew's gospel how some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven and so he decides to end all cause for the scandal you know, he was teaching women, and he didn't want any, I guess, ideas floating in his head um, about them, so he castrates himself. Um, I think he later regretted that. But he always was seeking the inner meaning of the Scripture, not satisfied with the simple, literal reading of Scripture. Origin writes, What man of intelligence will believe that the first and the second and the third day and the evening and the morning existed without the sun and moon and stars? And who is so silly as to believe that God, after the manner of a farmer, planted a paradise eastward in Eden? And when God is said to walk in the paradise in the cool of the day, I do not think anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history and not through actual events. So back to the creation. And that sounds just like Philo, does it not? Which was also in Alexandria. In Origen's view, the Bible is another form of incarnation of Jesus Christ, the divine word. The literal meaning corresponds to his humanity, while the allegorical reading opens up the mysteries of his divinity to the faithful. Origen's interpretations sometimes point towards the influence Platonism Greek philosophy had on him. Right? <clears throat> Origen's, um, you know, from here we see Alexandria makes popular the allegorical approach to scripture. So we'll read we'll jump back into philosophy after this cuz we are at an hour now. And uh, but anyway, yeah, I just thought that's interesting, the allegorical approach in Alexandria and Antioch's kind of the opposite end of that with a more literal reading and we'll look at how even Origen influences so much of Augustine's writing, which we've already talked about a little bit. But anyway, that's just a little start up. There's so much in those first few centuries. We'll probably do one lesson on the next on the whole Middle Ages, but there's so much in these first few centuries and I think it's just so interesting. But anyway, guys. Uh, yeah. So I hope, th- and reading those church father writings, they might be a little confusing, and and but it's just interesting reading them and seeing their point of views. But anyway, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll jump back into it next time. See ya.